Good evening, everybody. This is Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents, and I am your host tonight and almost every Thursday evening for the restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond telecouncil series. And I'm so looking forward to tonight's conversation. And before I welcome and introduce uh, our very special guest, who's with us all the way from Brazil, uh, just a few words about tonight's call and each of our teleconferences here on Maestro. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to all of you wherever you're calling from or Skyping in from around the world. And just um, if you've never been here before, I like to invite people to please press 1 on their keypad. That's your telephone keypad to ask a question, make a comment um, throughout the entirety of tonight's call. We go for an hour and I just want to invite uh, you to feel open to do that at any time during tonight's call. You can also find more information about this telecouncil series at mollyrowanpresents.com. There's archives posted there as well as uh, tonight's archive will be posted there. That's mollyrowanpresents.com. Next week's guest is Kenny Johnson of uh, the Sacred Space Project, and then the week after that is Sylvia Clute. Um, but without further ado, I'd just like to welcome into the circle tonight our very, very special guest, I've never met him in person, but I'm looking forward to doing a training possibly here with him in the United States this summer. And uh, just so deeply moved and impressed by his decades of groundwork in restorative circles. And um, we have a lot going on in our world right now around uh, justice and what it means to be connected and addressing our, our individual and collective wounds. And I'm, I'm just so happy and thrilled and honored to welcome you, Dominic, tonight um, to this, this telecouncil. We have a wonderful group, international it looks like, gathered tonight with us. But I'd just love to, first of all, um, again, warmly welcome you and, and ask if you might just Ground us with a little bit of an idea of the expansive journey you've taken to this moment. Welcome. Thank you, Molly. Very happy to do that. And I'm, I'm very grateful for all the, just now thinking of all the work you've done in, in setting up this series and setting up this call. And I'm sure there are many people out there who are also sharing my experience of, of gratitude for, for your service in bringing us all together like this. It's a real pleasure to be here. And... Uh, I just said to Molly just before we began, I'm actually feeling a little bit nervous, which quite often happens when I'm going to speak about something which is uh, important to me. And, and also I think it happens because I'm very much a learner in this work. Every time I, I look into it, I, I see something new, I find out something new. And that always also gives me a sense of, of excitement and adventure. So I hope we, we get to learn something new this evening about the, the power that we have to create communities that care for each other, and the extraordinary richness that can come when we start doing that very counterintuitive thing of moving towards conflict rather than moving away from it. Certainly what I've been taught, and I imagine it's the same for many of you. So the story of, of how I, I started moving towards conflict rather than away from it is really a love story. Um, I was in Amsterdam, about 20 years ago now, and I fell in love with a Brazilian. And after a few months, she went home, and I missed her very much, and we talked a little bit on the phone and decided that I should come over. And so I arrived in Rio, which is from where I'm speaking to you now, um, years ago, and I looked around and I saw this extraordinarily beautiful city, the natural beauty, but also the cultural beauty, the richness, the extraordinary ability of the people here to, to celebrate life. 
and I saw all those extraordinary things, the the images that many of us have about Brazil, and, and I find a, are usually very accurate. And at the same time, I saw this extraordinary social division, and this huge distance between different social groups, and immense personal and systemic violence arising from from that scenario. And I can remember feeling really shocked um, and thinking, you know, if I'd arrived in, in South Africa at the same time, 1992, I, I think I also would have been very shocked, but I couldn't have said uh, that I wasn't warned because I knew a lot about apartheid from the media, from the news, from my family and my friends. But here I felt completely unprepared for this level of, of social division and, and pain. And I wanted to do something about it and really was unable to. I didn't speak the language. I knew almost nobody. And um, after six months, as much as I wanted to stay and as much as the relationship was important to me, I really couldn't find a way to justify staying when I couldn't engage with the social reality around me in some way that was meaningful for me. So I went back to Europe, but um, Brazil kind of followed me everywhere I went. Uh, I'd never noticed there was Brazilian music everywhere. I'm sure there was before, but I just hadn't heard it before. And um, I kept on bumping up in, against Brazil, 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 as if it was a, a reminder to me that there was more for me to do there. So eventually I, I was invited back to, to work um, in the area that I was working in at the time, which is theater. And I made the most of that opportunity to start to engage in, in the, the context around me, very, very gently, quietly, without uh, organizing it or getting involved in big dramatic projects or promises. I literally simply walked into a shantytown community one day because those were the communities that I'd been told that I couldn't go into or that were dangerous for me to go into. And it seemed to me that it was exactly that division, that separation, um, that was impeding me from finding out what more could, could happen, what could change. I didn't realize at the time that it was that very walking towards the place of, of distance and disconnection within myself that would be the fundamental change itself. But um, I went into the, the favela, into the shantytown, and started trying to start conversations with people, which wasn't very easy. No one knew who I was. I didn't speak very much Portuguese. Um, but there were some children who would talk to me and I got chatting to them, and I'd go back and, and keep talking to them. And I started to, to notice that after a while, uh, trust would develop in the relationship, especially when I would let go of any clever ideas I had about contributing to their well-being or helping them in some way. And instead of that, simply hang out as a human being. And the more I did that, the more I'd find that these relationships of trust and connection would develop. And then as a consequence of that, people would start to confide in, confide in me. They would start to celebrate things that were important to them with me, and they'd also start to grieve and share their worries when life was hard. And what often made life hard was conflict and the fact that they didn't know what to do in response to conflict. And of course, I didn't either, but I understood that what people, the stories that people were bringing to me were fantastic uh, presents. And I wanted to learn how to unwrap those presents to receive the gift that I imagined was inside. So for the last roughly 17 years, I've been learning to unwrap the present of conflict to receive the gift inside. And because that's rather a flowery description, I call what I do restorative circles. But really that's what it is. It's about creating spaces in which conflict can flower, can reveal its meaning, its story to us rather than believing that we need to be frightened of it, repress it, distance ourselves from it, or even resolve it. Mm. I, you know, Dominic, one of the first uh, questions that I, I presented to you in our conversation over the past week, um, just you know, in, in our, our email conversation, um, had to do with a, a particular situation um, that I'm working with here in Colorado, and I was so moved by the way that you shifted 
the context of the conflict that we're experiencing here. Um, I, I believe the context of, of the question was um, how how do you help people understand what I, I was asking the question. So just to be clear here, I was asking Dominic, um, how do you help people to understand what restorative justice is? And Dominic, you said something along the lines uh, that totally to me was so key, and that was, um, I don't. I ask them. I was so moved by that, and I just was. I I just I just paused and I breathed deeply, and I thought, oh my goodness, this man is a saint. Um, he's helping to shift the context. Um, so could could you just talk for a moment about about that a little more deeply about that response about um, the inquiry with people. You, you, you were explaining that you ask people um, what justice might look like to them. Well, one of the few things I'm clear about is that I don't know the answers. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know what has uniquely happened in each, in each case, experience of painful conflict. Nor do I know how this particular conflict will unravel and reveal itself. And I certainly don't know what, what would be most reconnecting for the people involved. So listening isn't really a kind of a technique as a response. It's basically all I can do because I'm clueless. So I think of myself as someone who, who comes to the conflict late. I've been impacted by it because it's happened in my community happened in my world, but I'm, I, I probably am not aware of the impact that it has had on me until I actually start sitting down with the people and, and listening. So when I say that I, I don't try to convince people of anything, it's, it's simply a recognition of, of what my, underst my understanding of the, of the fact of the situation. Since I don't know what it is that they are currently dealing with, I have to listen. And the extraordinary thing I find is that as I do listen to them, as I listen to them reveal what it is that, make, that, that works for them when they respond to conflict, what doesn't work, and how, how they would like it to be, what they do is they teach me about restorative practices. They create from some deep well of knowledge that doesn't have a very well-established place in our society, but nonetheless seems to have continued to exist on the on the margins of what we give validity to, and in those communities that we have most marginalized, there seems to have continued to exist this deep understanding of what it takes to reweave the fabric of our relationships and our lives when, they, when that becomes torn. And people know this. So I find that as I listen to them, they will let me know what it is that they need. They will design the process that they need to go through. And then my job becomes to facilitate that and to see if some of my prior experience can support them to articulate that in a way that would be, um, that would be comprehensive and detailed and specific and, and grounded enough to actually get them the results that they want. What, what do you think uh, we are afraid of in, in unwrapping the gift of conflict, and how does that relate to um, our, our view of, of what justice is? Well, I know what I'm frightened of. I'm, I'm frightened of not knowing what's going to happen next. I'm frightened of change, and that's exactly what conflict does. Conflict is, is feedback within any system, the system of my body or the system of, of our relationship or a social system. And what it's, what it's feedback about is the fact that something has shifted. New information has come in. Something new has happened. And things can't change and stay the same. So when new information comes in, that means that something's going to shift. And when that something involves my sense of myself, my identity, I get, I get wobbly. I feel, I feel nervous and there's a 
there's a cautiousness, there's a tension, there's a holding pattern that, that occurs in my body as I move towards that conflict. And if I have a lot of uh, social support to move away from that stimulus, if I bought into the belief that it's possible to avoid conflict, then I might try to do that. And of course that will increase my fear because as I move away from that which is calling me, it moves after me. The further I move away from justice, from, from conflict, the louder it speaks, the louder it calls me. And that increase in the volume of conflict is what generates first painful conflict, a, a physical sensation that alerts me to the fact that I'm out of balance. And then over time, violence, which is a, a way that people and, and institutions find to reinforce the message that things are not okay, that balance is not there. So as I move away from conflict, I find that I'm moving away from justice, and that's painful and frightening. So I, when I notice that, I think, okay, so the fear was useful feedback. I, I don't need to increase the fear to get that message. I can, I can get wise and wake up to it a little bit earlier and start moving towards it, and then my fear actually diminishes. That's a really fascinating experience to me. It takes a while for that to happen. Sometimes as I walk towards conflict, initially, I actually feel more frightened because it's such an unusual thing to do. But at the same time, I'm more secure. Danger is distancing ourselves from, from conflict. I actually get more secure when I move towards it. But it might take a while for my organism to readjust and to get used to it. So initially, it might actually feel um, a little bit more frightening to move towards conflict until we've started to experience mm. how incredibly uh, supportive and fruitful doing that is. Uh, and you're really speaking to such a deep um, physiological aspect of, of, of being human and how ingrained we are in self-protection and, and literally when, you know, when violence has happened, just that natural limbic response that we we have um, that that, that moving sure that physically I'm physically I'm safe. When I say moving towards conflict, I'm not talking about being foolhardy with with my physical integrity. Right, and and as we as we move through, and as as you're saying, as we move towards um, the gift uh, of conflict it's very likely, is it not, that we also notice these limbic responses that may even be from, you know, very past experiences or, or patterns that maybe we've taken with us on this journey of life. Is that, is that the case, Dominic? Yeah, absolutely, because the, the current responses to conflict and injustice that we have, they're, they're built on a, a certain way of thinking, a certain way of seeing human beings. And when they exist, they then start emanating that same way of seeing human beings. So without really noticing it, we're really seeped in a particular view of, of human behavior, which leads us to believe that human beings can be very dangerous, very scary. And so there's some, there's some deep shifts that go on as we start to do this apparently quite small and simple thing of moving towards the people with whom we are in conflict mm. and sitting down to discover what are the good reasons for this conflict to have arisen and what is it that it's trying to show us. Almost as if it's a messenger. Yep. I think if we look at, if we look at uh, conflict as uh, an aspect of communication, that is often a more effective uh, way of orienting ourselves in relation to it than if we look at it as um, an illness or something undesirable that needs to be made to go away. It's actually just an incredibly abundant resource that culturally we've spent quite a long time ignoring. And now we find that with the way the world is working and the way our communities are set up, it's too costly to continue to ignore it. So we're beginning to, to turn around and, and face it for the first time in in many generations, at least within mainstream Western culture, that's the case. And because it isn't the case in some of the most marginalized cultures, 
a lot of restorative justice work is heavily inspired by those more isolated communities, those more marginalized communities, which many of which have preserved a lot of this underlying wisdom and know a lot more about how to stand in the fire of conflict and be transformed by it. Mm. I just want to pause for a moment and welcome you all who are still arriving tonight. We're in deep conversation here with Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles. And I really encourage those of you who haven't yet visited the Restorative Circles website to do so, uh, restorativecircles.org. And they're also on Facebook as well as on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter call sign or handle, so to speak, is at Restora Circles. And um, just take a pause here for a moment. I, I see some hands up and just want to remind everybody um, to, throughout tonight's call, if you have a question for Dominic or you'd like to make a reflection or comment, please just press 1 on your telephone keypad. Thank you. And uh, Sora, go ahead. You're live. Welcome, Sora. Sora? Okay. Don't think I nope, must not have a live line there. All right. Well, we'll move. I, I, I'd like to to just um, again encourage those of you who'd like to to ask a question or make a comment throughout tonight's call. Press one on your keypad. And uh, given that we have some people probably skyping in and coming in from around the world, um, I'll do the best I can to to um, field your questions tonight. And so, Dominic, I just would love to go into the um, specific aspect of, of restorative circles and how um, how specifically do they work? Is there how do you approach them? Are, are there tra there's trainings, right? And could you just talk about what uh, what they mean and and how um, how they play out? I think the first thing that's important to say, because I think uh, quite a few of the people listening are from, from North America, is that in North America, restorative circles with a small r and a small c is a generic term which refers to uh, a wide range of different restorative practices, which are all generally connected by the fact that they suggest that we bring people together when there is an issue, and that we focus on listening to each other and being understood by each other so that we can reach conclusions that bring benefit for everybody. In, in Brazil, we were very unaware of, of restorative justice and the international uh, work of restorative practices around the world. We basically had no information and no, and no contacts. So when we started using the term circulus uh, restaurativos, which would be restorative circles in translation, we didn't realize that it was being used elsewhere for, for different things. So we use it with a capital R and a capital C, and we mean it to refer very specifically to the work that developed in these favela communities here in Rio in the mid-1990s, or from the mid-1990s onwards. So restorative circles for, for us refers to um, a very specific set of responses to what we observe naturally occurs when people start to experience conflict as painful or even violent. What we sought to do was not to create um, uh, a method that could kind of uh, uh, intend to magically make everything okay, but rather simply to follow what we, we were observing was naturally occurring. And as we followed it, to notice, okay, so where in this naturally occurring process is the logic that distances people and makes the pain worse. Where is that manifesting? And every time we noticed that it was manifesting in a certain way, we asked ourselves the question, okay, how can we tweak it? How can we shift it so that it, it, it acts to bring people closer together? It acts to create more understanding. It acts to create a deeper sense of community and coexistence rather than uh, producing more distance, more doubt, and eventually often more pain, more violence, more punishment. So we noticed that there, there were three general phases to the manifestation of the conflict. 
but the first one was where people spent a lot of time talking about what happened. So usually a conflict was made known by a particular event. Someone said something, someone did something. And often we refer to that as being the conflict, but from the perspective of restorative circles, that's just a manifestation of the conflict. Lots of conflicts in our lives have many different manifestations. They, they appear at different times during the day. Sometimes they last hours or weeks, months, even years and decades. And they manifest in all kinds of different ways, but un underneath, it's the same conflict. So we noticed that one particular event would stimulate people, and then immediately they'd start talking about it. So they'd talk to someone in the street, or they'd ring up a friend, or they'd knock on someone's door, and the word was passed around. And the way people spoke about what had happened had a very specific focus to it. It seemed designed to communicate at least two things. One, the actual event that occurred, but two, mixed together with that event, the meaning that it had for the person who was speaking. And the intention of that was to frame the story in such a way that the listener would immediately recognize who was the person who did the wrong thing. And that makes sense if you look at it, because that's how our current justice systems, whether the formal ones or the informal ones, that's how they're designed. All of them require us to identify the wrongdoer. If we don't identify the wrongdoer, then the justice system doesn't have the material it needs to work with, and it gets into trouble. So if we want to shift to the justice system in some way, then we needed understanding to very, very specifically focus in on that moment and shift the question. So the question was no longer who had done the wrong thing. The question was now, what needs are unmet here? When I use the word needs, I'm specifically referring to something which is collective, something which connects people, some underlying value or principle that is more than just individual. So what connecting values, what community principles, what aspects of our, co our social cohesion are in play here? So that's the question that we shifted. That's the question that we shifted to. So we'll start with what we call a pre-circle, which is nothing more than a kind of organized way to create space for that gossiping ten tendency to occur. And in that space, we'll ask specific questions that just like naturally happens, seek to identify what happened and what it means, but this time, instead of mixing them together in order to decide who did the wrong thing, we'll ask those questions in a way that intends separation between what happened and its meaning. And when we listen to the meaning, we're seeking to connect people's values and principles rather than to separate them into the offenders and the victims or the good guys and the bad guys. And then, when we go into the circle itself, again, we noticed, well, what do people do? They try and get heard by each other. How well do they do? Well, not very easily, not very well. When, when, when people are in conflict and they meet, they'll try to communicate with each other, but often both of them are trying to do that at the same time, and they're not spending a lot of time listening. So there's not much dialogue happening. There's a lot of speaking, but there's not much communicating. So in the circle itself, the first thing that we do is to re-establish dialogue and create an environment that we understand is marked by mutual comprehension. So people are not just speaking, but they're speaking and being heard. They're speaking and being heard in the spirit of the way that they're speaking. So that people start to get onto the same page, start to speak the same language. Once they do that, what tends to happen naturally is that they'll start to investigate the issue itself. They'll go back and they'll ask really basic questions. Why did you do that? Why then? Why with me? Why did you say those words? Why did you do those things? So again, we want to facilitate this naturally occurring process. Support people to express those questions and their responses to those questions, but to make sure that the people they're speaking to actually understand what they're saying before they respond. And once that happens, what we noticed occurs naturally is that people start brainstorming. They start making requests of each other, or they start making offers to each other. They start seeking new actions 
which will create more safety, which will create more connection, which will create more understanding. And naturally occurring, those tend to be quite, uh, quite generalized. People say things like, I won't do it again. And what we found is we could support them to make those desires for something different to happen very, very specific and concrete, and then measure them, give them time frames so that we could check if they actually occur. And that leads us to the third and final part of the process, which we call the post-circle, which again is nothing more than a way to organize a different experience of gossip, which is where people check in with each other and they say, so what's happening? You know, you told me about that awful thing that happened last week. How are things going? Has it changed? What's happened since? So in the post-circle, we want to tell those stories about the result of people putting into play the things they asked each other to do, the things they offered to each other, to find out if the social cohesion has been uh, remade. That's a, a, a very rough overview of the, of the process, and I hope that what it does is um, shows you that rather than a fixed technique that we use to respond to conflict, the intention of restorative circles is to really accompany and support the conflict and those who are in conflict to do what they do naturally, but in a way that actually brings them closer together, safer, and with more understanding of the systemic conditions within which the conflict first occurred, so that people can not just heal between themselves, but also can start to understand how their social systems might be making conflict more painful, more violent, and how those social systems can be tweaked and changed or even completely overhauled to create the kind of world that they want to live in. Mm. Wow. I was just thinking about one of the probably very typical and universal situations too, Dominic, that surely is often experienced in these circles and anywhere we are in, in our communities. Um, and, the, and those are the experiences of someone who, uh, whether they don't quite understand what restorative justice um, implies, and I know my, my deepest vision for this world is actually unitive justice, um, which in fact I'd just like to honor and acknowledge Sylvia Clute, who happens to be on with us tonight. Um, she's such a, a, a deep um, advocate and um, has a beautiful book called Beyond Vengeance, Beyond Duality um, that speaks to the, the principles of unitive justice. And um, it's very interesting to me to, you know, to feel that and understand that kind of consciousness as being based on very, the very simple, timeless principle of um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Whereas uh, my understanding of punitive justice, interestingly, just take the P off and you have unitive. Um, but with punitive justice, uh, it's quite the other way, and that's uh, you know an eye for an eye mentality. And um, I just wonder what, how do you, uh, how do you fit with people? Um, I, I'm guessing in a curious way in an open and malleable way, in a way that invites them to their own process of discovery because we know that we're learning. I certainly feel that way myself, um, like a child, a beginner's mind in this, um, and knowing the importance of, of very deep listening and not uh, forcing, too. But, but in, uh, what I'm getting at here is um, this interesting uh, other aspect of restorative um, justice and, and how people see it as, as something that is not justice, that it's actually um, you know, something that is maybe soft or, or uh, excusing of, of the, the, the crime or the harm. And I wondered if you might just speak a little bit to that in your experience. Well, I, I really appreciate and, and find myself in great company with people who are very skeptical about the kind of practices that I'm describing here. Um, I mm. was also very skeptical when I saw this happening, and I would hope that everybody would be skeptical about something 
that is so central to our to our well-being, to our sense of community, as is the sense of justice. So I, I really welcome the skepticism. I also wouldn't want to um, play games with something as essential as justice. I'd want to make sure that if we do start to change the systemic conditions that we set up to, for responding to conflict, that we do so not because uh, we feel like it or we're going through a moment of a lot of cultural disorientation and other things have changed, so we might as well change this one too. I'd want to make sure that we only do that when we have repeated concrete experience of finding a way that we find as effective or more effective than our current system of justice. Fortunately, uh, it's not too hard at the moment to, to find so much that is ineffectual and, if not outright, unjust about our current justice system, that the desire to see it change and the search for concrete uh, real-world alternatives to it is, is very intense and getting more intense every day. So I can, I can very much resonate with people's skepticism, and that for me is a fantastic place to start the dialogue because I want to find out what it is about the current system that is valuable for them and to make sure that we know when we design something new exactly what we're aiming for. I'd want to make sure that anything new we design is as effective or more effective at meeting those underlying concerns that people have than, than the current system that we have. It seems to me that one of the underlying concerns that people may have um, certainly stems from a, a deep desire, as you've, you, you've spoken to already a bit, um, around being heard and feeling an authentic transmission of, of that um, in whatever their process is. And then certainly you know, this, this uh, condition of humanness called safety <laughs> certainly um, is you know, a very deep aspect and a practical one that um, that we you know need to take seriously and and look at um, in all the the senses of, of what that implies. And um, I just love the way uh, that that you help us to shift our understanding of um, of of the movement within the circle and uh, you know the the invitation uh, for there to be understanding and that it's that, that you're co-creating this together. Um, yeah, I consider myself to be really, really blessed that about a, about a year into the into the experimenting that that gradually manifested as restorative circles. Um, I met a man called Marshall Rosenberg. Uh, I'm guessing many of you have heard of through through his work with nonviolent communication. And Marshall has spent the last 50 years basically investigating what it is that creates the conditions for partnership and what it is that interferes with those conditions. And Marshall gave me a lot of support through offering me a vocabulary which I could use to name some of the dynamics that I was observing, such as those around listening and also those around the need for shared power. When we talk about a circle, we're not talking about a way to organize chairs. We're talking about a way to share power. And, um, and Marshall's work was, was inc incredibly useful in giving me clues as to what to look for and to helping me articulate the things that I, that I was noticing. So my ability to really understand the importance of listening and how specific dialogue is and how important it, how rare it is in normal life, and how important it is to recover the conditions for dialogue within within a restorative practice. Uh, a lot of that has been greatly supported by by Marshall's work and, and the ability I had to to hang out with him. Mm. I, I'm wondering if um, if you might speak a little bit more uh, to the aspect of, of facilitation and um, the qualities that I, I think we're already hearing uh, a lot of them tonight with you. But if you could pinpoint a few of, of what you might 
might um, consider to be some of the most essential qualities, if there are any, um, mm -hmm. that, that apply to a facilitator of restorative circles. I'd lovely to go into that for a moment. I think the, the thing that's often most surprising to people, especially when they're used to the word facilitation being used uh, as it often is in, in North America, is that someone who facilitates a circle is hopefully someone from the community that has been impacted. So rather than looking for someone who is supposedly neutral or in, in some way um, unbiased, we're actually looking for someone who's implicated. We're looking for someone who's been touched, moved, and changed by, by what has happened. So rather than seeking impartiality, which personally speaking, I, I can't say that I've ever actually seen, we're looking for someone who is able to be multipartial, omnipartial, pluripartial, that is someone who is able to connect to the experience of each person present. And then another surprising change is that the focus of a, someone who's facilitating a restorative circle, or rather offering facilitation, which I think is a more accurate way to describe it, is to not help. Mm. To not try and save anybody present, and to not take responsibility for anybody's experience. So rather than being someone who focuses their participation on the idea of a certain skill set, we're actually looking for someone who is willing to sit there and be skill-less. Someone who's willing to sit there and simply follow the community agreements that cover the five basic questions that we found are useful for people to use at different times in the circle. Not in a scripted sense and not even in any particular order, but to use those questions as a response to the natural unraveling of the conflict as it uniquely happens in that particular circle. So that willingness, that availability, that simplicity, of course, um, because it's so simple, is often not at all easy. And that means that practice and support and time, repetition, become very key factors in people learning to be able to support others to go through uh, a conflict in a, in, a, in a fruitful, positive way. It's not the same as skill, but it definitely isn't the same as doing anything that comes into your head. It, it becomes a very specific way to, at the end of the day, be present and to track meaning to actively track the process of co-creating meaning that the participants in the circle will, in, in whatever way that they, they, they find themselves able to, will be involved in. Mm. I love that, to track meaning and, and, and co-creatively track it together. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, um, you know, certainly in my own course of, of growing and learning, on this path uh, is is our tendency, um, myself included, to want to fix. And I think you spoke to that. Um, just just briefly touched on that. And um, certainly, there's a precision and a um, a hands-offness to uh, facilitation or to offering facilitation that um, allows for the natural course of of feeling to rise um, to its fruition without harming um, the group field or, or the, the collective energetic. And it seems like such a delicate dance, Dominic, um, you know, to, to uh, you know, this tendency. How, how do we address our tendency to want to kind of put out the fire, so to speak, of this gift that wants to come to us in the form sometimes of anger, right? Yeah. Um, and rightfully, you know, people are angry at, at some of the, the horrible things that come to them. Um, Absolutely. And so how do we hold space for that? Um, it's funny. The, like, when I ask the question, how, I don't know if you've had this ex same experience, I often find that, that question quite disempowering. It uh -huh. seems to be that built into the question, how, is the idea that there is an answer and that it is outside. <laughs> 
and, and I'm not really sure that there's a problem here, so I'm not really sure that there's a need for an answer. Because a conflict, just like feelings, like feelings like anger or any other feelings, uh, arises naturally. It doesn't actually need to be managed or changed or handled or dealt with. It just is. It's, it's manifesting. But creating a container for it can be really, really useful, especially in communities in which we haven't had a lot of experience of dealing with this kind of phenomena, or we've been pretending that we haven't. And so we feel fearful of it. Just like um, until recently, in, in the kind of communities that I'm, I'm guessing most of the listeners are, uh, are living in, people would have been very frightened of feelings. And of course, many of us still are frightened of some intense feelings. But generally, the idea that feelings are part of life that has gone from being a very strange, slightly suspect idea, that is maybe how it was for our, for our grandparents, to being an idea that most of us are, are somewhat comfortable with now. And I think part of the cultural shift we're in is for people to begin to make the same transition around conflict and around the emotions that come up with conflict, such as anger. You know, I just I so appreciate the way that you reframe the context of 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 each of of the the questions or the observations that I've had in our 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 time together. Um, it's really it's a, I've had many aha moments with you, Dominic, and and I just um, would like to invite uh, our circle tonight, this beautiful circle from all over the world. Again, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, please press 1 on your telephone keypad. And uh, we, we're going to go in here to the last uh, ten, 10 minutes of, of our time together tonight. And just want to remind everybody to please visit restorativecircles.org, which is Dominic's and uh, the Restorative Circles um, web hub, as well as on Twitter, at Restora Circles, and they also have a Facebook page. It's just simply Restorative Circles. So Dominic, I'd, I'd just love to, to move into a, a, perhaps a direction of, of um, if you have any reflections um, from these decades of experience that you've had of, of any particular case or scenario that, that seemed particularly I mean, I'm sure they all have nuances, and each one has something. Um, of a, I mean, they each have their their gift. But is is there any particular scenario or situation that you've worked with that you would would like to share um, as a a little story from your your life of experience tonight? Sure. Um, so so the the work began in in the in communities, and it stayed in communities for many years. Then in the end of 2004, I was invited to, to organize the, the training and design the restorative practice for the first pilot projects in restorative justice that happened in, in uh, schools and high schools, in the youth court system, in youth prisons, with policing and with social services. Quite ambitiously, the Ministry of Justice here decided to, to work on all those environments at the same time and to try and interconnect them as much as possible. Um, but after a while, we realized that we needed to keep on working in the communities at the same time. And so this particular story happens from after those pilot projects began, after we were a couple of years into them. Um, but it's a story that comes from, from a community in a, a, large, a large capital city, capital of a state, so very much like a large city would be in the U.S., except the, the areas of poverty are, are very much... Uh, in, in plain view, as, as they think they often aren't in, in Europe and the U.S., even though we know that they're there, hidden. Um, and this is uh, two, two people who live in, in uh, huts that they've built for uh, scrap wood and odd bricks wherever they could find them and, and corrugated iron on the, on, the, on the roof. And in between the, these two huts was an open sewer. Um, there's a lot of rain in this city. And when it would rain, the sewer, the, the sewer would fill up, and then the sewage would 
would spill out and, and go into their houses. And one of them would put out his rubbish bags uh, in a way that the rubbish bags would often roll down a slope and into the sewer and block the, the flow of the sewage, make it more likely that the sewage was going to seep into the house of his neighbor. Um, his neighbor got very angry and went looking for a solution. You know, he'd been talking to his neighbor for a long time and nothing had changed. And in that community, which was run by uh, an armed drug gang, the, m the normal thing that you do is you'd speak to the boss of the drug gang and, and he'd offer to, to sort the problem out for you, which often meant uh, using threats, using violence, or perhaps even doing some damage or even expelling the, the family uh, who, who were part of the, part of the problem of the, of the neighbor. And as he was doing this, as he was going there, he realized that, of course, the problem with asking the gang is that after they've done the service for you, they want something back. And that thing that they ask you to do can often get you into big trouble. So instead of going to the gang, he went to a local community center where a restorative system had been set up. A restorative system is the systemic context that makes it possible for restorative circles like the ones I'm talking about here to occur. We need to create uh, a room in which, so to speak, in which the meeting can occur. Because if we don't, the dominant paradigm, the dominant way of responding to and thinking about justice, will make our restorative practice that much more fragile. It will make it seem less logical and make its results seem less doable. So we want to create an environment where restorative circles seem, seem logical and obvious and their results are valid, not just for the participants, but for the wider community as well. So he went to the community center and found out about this process, and he pushed the magic button. He started the process by signing, signing up. You don't request a restorative circle. You initiate one, because it's necessary that this process be made by the community and that it, be, that it belong to the community, not be offered as a service by others, but be participated in by everybody who feels themselves impacted by the life of that community. So he did that, and in the circle, when these people get together, the circle went in a way that's very common. First, we did the pre-circles, listening to each of the, the three groups that make up the, the participants of the conflict individually. That is, the person who had done the act in question, who we call the author, the person who received the direct impact, so that's his neighbor. We call that person the receiver. And then that third essential group that's so often forgotten when we look at conflict, which is the wider community who are often very negatively impacted by what happened and have a great deal of potential power to contribute to solutions if only we include them in the process and ask them. So these people were gathered together after having been through their pre-circles in the circle. And the process went pretty normally, establishing dialogue and then starting to understand why the things that had happened had happened in the way that they had so that we can begin to humanize each other, stop seeing each other as good people and bad people, as monsters and victims, and actually start understanding that, as strange as it may seem, people were actually trying to take care of themselves when they did the awful things that they did to each other. And what was interesting about this circle was at a certain point, when the rehumanization process had occurred sufficiently, one of the neighbors looked at the other and said, why is there an open sewer in between our homes? And the other person said, I don't know. It's just, it's always been like that. It was like that when I moved here. And he went, and the other one went, yeah, well, it was like that when I moved here, too. And for me, that showed a, a, an extraordinary power that circles can occasionally create the conditions for us to re-engage with. And that's the power of realizing that things don't just happen. The way things are is not the way things have always been or the way they always need to be. That we can actually engage with our circumstances and co-create the kind of communities that we want to live in. So what was beautiful for me about that process and the action plan that came out of it was that people didn't just decide to do things for each other that would diminish the harm that they'd done and create better conditions. They also decided to work as partners to change the circumstances within which their conflict had become painful. So mm. They saw beyond the interpersonal and started to understand the systemic context of their lives and to take back that essential power which for me is the, is the definition of a citizen. It's not someone who votes or someone who reads the newspaper and tries to stay informed. It's someone who is conscious of themselves as coexisting with others. 
engages consciously in that coexistence to live actively, dynamically in community. So that was a really beautiful moment of a, of a circle and it helped to, to remind me that really restorative circles at the end of the day are just a small part of a wider change that many of us are involved in where we're actually rediscovering what it means to live together, what it mm. means to get on with each other, what it means to understand each other, mm. and what it means to take care of the world so that hopefully we can create the kind of conditions for, for life on earth to, to flourish and we can transform some of the social systems that are currently causing so much pain, the economic system, the education system, the health systems. So many of our social systems are simply currently unable to meet the needs that they were originally designed to take care of. And my hope is that restorative circles can play a small part in us waking up to, to the, the, the larger questions of, of society and to start taking care of each other and the, and the planet that we're living on. Mm. I would like to go ahead and, and uh, open up to receiving a few contemplations, questions for Dominic, um, with Dominic. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Judith. Welcome. Judith? Judith, you, Judith Katz, you're live. We may be experiencing a bit of technical difficulty with the mics tonight. My apologies, Judith and others. Um, I just wanted to. Well, to luckily, this, uh, luckily, I, I, I know that um, I know that Judith uh, writes emails on on our on our list uh, sometimes, which is. Uh, a Yahoo group that you can join by going to our website. And, oh, wonderful! Um, I think she's also on the on the uh, the Facebook page. So I'm hoping that um, later on maybe she can she can write out her question and and I'll try and answer it there. And then if any of you listening would like to either um, friend us on on Facebook or or join our, our email listserv, then you can find all the information on our website and then you can see my response <coughs> to you there. It, it sounds like I do have a live mic for Jatendra. Are you there, Jatendra? Uh, I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Welcome oh, tonight. Hi. Thank you. Um, I I mistimed uh, when this was happening, so I'm I, I was quite a bit late, um, and, and this is my first exposure to uh, to, to Dominic to the restorative circles, and I'm I'm I'm. Just feeling very moved and appreciative for uh, everything you, you're, you're saying. I've been, um, you know, my work for the past 20 years has been uh, working in training settings, teaching consciousness transformation in, in closed training settings. And the past year I've been very um, uh, interested to transpose that work into into the to the more unbounded uh, community settings like like you're describing, um, and so when you said uh, you know how do we hold a space for anger and, and conflict, I I thought that was very interesting what you said, Donna, because my you know my the training of my habit is to is to go in and to intervene and to break things down and kind of, you know, work with it a bit. And so um, just to say I'm very, very, very interested in, in uh, uh, learning a bit more about how you work and what you're doing and uh, just to understand uh, the dynamics of, of uh, presencing uh, that you use. Uh, so I could go on, but Thank I you. won't. Yeah, thank you so much. I think much. The, the essential thing for me, Tendra, is is getting getting a lot of support. I I don't do this work. I don't even go on a call like this without making sure that I have support. Um, in fact, I have I, I've swapped a couple of text messages with someone who often offers me support while I do this work while we were talking on the call. And I find that making sure that I have support and that I'm working as part of a team with people who know to make sure that I've got support is the most 
productive thing I can do as I keep walking into the the ongoing unknown of 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 conflict. Thank you so much, Jatendra. And I just want to honor Jatendra's work uh, with Occupy Cafe, very significant network, uh, I believe internationally, that he's a part of. And just to thank you again, Jatendra, for being here with us tonight. Um, so Dominic, uh, we have uh, come to the top of the hour. and. It's just been such a rich journey with you, and we could certainly go much further, I'm sure. And I, I just wonder if we might just spend another minute, um, or maybe two, if you're okay with that, just just so that 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 people can uh, who haven't had exposure to restorative circles yet, or who aren't sure. Uh, I know that you said that this is is something that they initiate, that we initiate in our communities. And I'm just wondering, what are the steps that people take? Um, are there any, for that matter? And um, how can can people perhaps connect with you, possibly upcoming in the near future? Sure. Well, um, we're we're committed to sharing this work as as much as possible, and to making sure that everybody who who would like it can get access to it. Um, so uh, we we have some somewhat unusual uh, ways of doing that. And one of them is that we make sure that we give the work away so that we don't, uh, we don't charge for it or create financial barriers for people to, to get to it. Um, at the moment, it still involves uh, meeting and spending time with someone who's learned the work and is applying it, someone like Sylvia Clute, who you mentioned, who's there. I'm sure there are several other people on the call who are also building restorative systems and using restorative circles and other practices uh, within them. Um, but in the near future, we hope to be able to provide much more material using, using video and written resources and distribute those on, on the website so that people can get them. But for now, probably the best way to learn is to find uh, a way to, to spend time in, in one of the events giving. So I'd like to uh, share some dates so that people can put those in their calendar if they would like spend more time learning this work. So uh, the next thing that I'm doing in Europe happens on the 22nd of April next month in um, Denmark. And if you visit our website and uh, register for our, our mailing, then early next week we'll be sending out information about that event. And it would be wonderful if some of you could be there. So that's Sunday the 22nd of April. In, in Copenhagen in Denmark. The next event in, in the US is a, a series of events that are going to be happening in August. The first is in, in Denver, in Colorado. I hope close to you, Molly. That's August 9th, 10th, and 11th. Uh, and I'll be there as part of the 2012 Colorado Restorative Justice Summit. Find information on that by going to restorativejusticecolorado.org restorativejusticecolorado.org, and then clicking on the 2012 Summit button. Or, again, there will be information on that in our mailing if you register your email address on our website before the beginning of next week. And then the week after that, I'll be in Rochester in New York. Um, we've done uh, quite a lot of work in, in Rochester as part of the Restorative Rochester Initiative and with local organizations such as PIRI. And there is, in fact, a restorative system already at the University of Rochester, which was set up by a colleague of mine who's learned restorative circles, Dushira. And uh, several different organizations in town are using restorative circles. In fact, Occupy uh, Rochester decided just last night or the night before last to adopt a restorative system uh, for themselves internally. So there we'll be offering a one-day overview of the work on Saturday, the 18th of August. And then a four-day facilitation practice on Monday the 20th to Thursday the 23rd of August. All of that at the University of Rochester. Uh, the overview will, will give you a taste of what the work's like, and facilitation practice will take you into the, to the details and the practice of sitting with people in conflict and using the questions that we found are effective uh, to help support that conflict to manifest. And so those are the next events. And as Molly has said several times, our Facebook page, our website, and our Twitter 
stream will give you all the details that you'll need in order to be able to register for those. I hope very much that I get to see you there and, and learn from all the experiences that you people have. And I always find that I do always find new things every time I share this work. I never come out of it the same, and that's part of the blessing of doing this. Dominic, it has been so beautiful to have you here with us tonight in circle, in virtual circle, thanks to this technology that brings us together in this way. And I, I just bow to you so deeply um, and to all of us in co-creating uh, a world that we already know resides within us, as you so beautifully put many times tonight. The answers really truly reside within us. and. Um, may we allow them through us together in co-creating systemic change that recognizes uh, the bounty that we each hold within this human tapestry. And uh, I'm, I'm again just so honored and humbled. Um, your uh, dear brother in this work, and uh, I wish you safe journeys up to Denmark. And you will for sure be seeing me in Denver uh, this August. <laughs> And please, everyone, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just thank everybody for joining us tonight. And remember, too, that you can go to mollyrowanpresents.com. And of course, Dominic will, will have this audio as well to share out to his circles however he wishes. So the uh, recording of this will be at hand and freely shared, um, posted at, at both of our websites. Um, I'm assuming at some point on yours or however you'd like to use it, Dominic. Um, please join me next week as I host the author of The Last Hustle, Kenny Johnson, who spent many, many decades of his life in prison and who, whose experience within the bars and walls um, transformed him and who now works uh, on the ground with prisoners, especially um, just surrounding that, that inner essence and remembrance of the goodness within us all. So thank you, everyone. And, oh, and also, um, the week thereafter, on March 27th, Sylvia Clute will join me. And thank you so much, everybody, once again. And Dominic, bless your heart. Good night, everyone. Good night.